The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Carlton English, reporter at Barron's. Thank you for joining us today to learn more about the week ahead in markets. Today's guest is Richard Bernstein, CEO and CIO of Richard Bernstein Advisors. Welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for being here. Carlton, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So uh, obviously a lot to unpack with markets these days. Um, you know, we got the unemployment print last week. We're at a multi-decade low for unemployment, but multi-decade highs of inflation. I'm just curious, in your career, how do you find that this current macro environment compares to other periods? A lot of comparisons have been made maybe to the 1970s. I've heard some people talking about the post-World War II economy when there was obviously a major supply chain disruption. Just curious if what we're seeing now matches anything else you've experienced or studied. Sure. You know, Carlton, I think there's there's bits and pieces to be taken from lots of lots of periods in history. First of all, you know, the supply chain disruptions that, that we all know um, well by this time, you know, a lot of economists who poo-pooed that with respect to inflation just said that if we could alleviate the supply chain disruptions, there would be no inflation. And I think that kind of ignores history. You know, one has to remember that the United States' um, biggest bouts of inflation originated with supply chain disruptions, whether it's the 73-74 oil embargo or the 1979 oil embargo. Those were supply chain disruptions. Of course, they were politically induced because of what was going on in the Middle East, but they were supply chain disruptions and they substantially changed the way the, the economy acted. Now, why is that important today? It's important today because the supply chain disruptions today have now lasted longer than 73, 74 and 1979 combined. Combined, this is a major event in US economic history and to think that it's not going to change behavior in, in you know, one form or another seems, uh, uh, if I can use the word, a bit naive to me um, that, that, of course, it's changing the way people think. So, you know, I think that we don't have a wage and price spiral like you had in the 1970s. I think now we have a price and wage spiral where prices went up first and now wages are rushing to catch up with with prices given the very, very tight labor market that you mentioned before. So it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg argument. I get that. But but I think that we are changing behavior. And um, I think that's a, a lot of economists are kind of missing that. Any ideas on why this supply chain disruption has been so persistent? Is it just because over the last several decades, we've moved more towards maybe a services economy versus a goods economy and just trying to figure out how to have those supply chain work? those supply chains work or any ideas why we're in this kind of sticky situation? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you've kind of hit on it in terms of the trade deficit, right? And, and you know, I was probably the only person who didn't think that moving from a goods economy, manufacturing economy to a services economy was good, right? My joke always was, if I scratch your back and you scratch my back, we have a service economy, but we produce zero value added in the economy. 
And I think to some extent, that's exactly what's happened. We've become more and more dependent on value-added goods from outside the United States. And so when you get a supply chain disruption, unlike you know in past decades, we don't have the facilities, we don't have the capacity or the manufacturing capacity to make up for those disruptions and make, make the goods ourselves. I think that's, that's also something that many investors are missing in, in terms of his globalization contracts, which I think we'll all agree it is, that puts upward pressure on prices because we just don't make stuff here anymore. I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course we make stuff, but we don't make enough stuff here anymore. Definitely makes sense. Um, so you recently did a Q&A with Barron's um, where you, uh, you had talked about the Fed going from being an inflation fighter to being a savior of the economy. Do you find that that is risky? Oh, I, I think that um, that's kind of the insidious evil of monetary policy in the United States. If I can, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that to kind of accentuate and dr dramatize it, but I, I think it's been very insidious that when I started my career, the Fed was thought of as a central bank that would fight inflation at any and all costs. And what's happened through time, as they were successful, um, I think the Federal Reserve and I think investors um, became kind of soft and, and took for granted that this was that, that, that there was no inflation and therefore the Fed was not going to be an inflation fighter. The, the Fed would be an, an economic booster. And um, so here we are, and we now have the highest inflation rate in 40 years, but yet the Fed is caught, and the can't, Fed can't decide which role it wants to play. Does it want to be the inflation fighter, or does it want to be the economic booster? It can't quite figure it out. And so what's happening, it's, it's kind of in the middle of the road, um, being very squeamish about being aggressive, but yet not wanting to really hurt the economy. I mean, they can't decide what they want to do, and the end result is that they're basically not doing anything in my mind. And just curious, um, obviously a lot of the inflation we're seeing today has to do with the disruptions that we've seen over the past uh, two years and the policy responses to them. But we have been in a more than decade period of ultra low interest rates. Do you think that some of the inflation that we're seeing now is also just a function of that, you know, more than decade of ultra low rates? I, I'm not so sure it's the long-term decade, although that, that certainly didn't hurt <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, think, I think the way to think of it is that in response to the pandemic, the Fed played that role of economic booster, right? They wanted to be the cushion. That was, again, the new monetary policy, you know, not new, but the, the evolution of monetary policy was that they wanted to be the booster. So when we had the pandemic, they played the booster and they played it big time. Right. Monetary growth here in the United States got up about 27, 28 percent, which rivaled us with Peru in terms of, of that. Now, we could argue whether that was the right response or wrong response. However, the wrong response was to keep monetary policy as loose as it was as the economy got better. That made mm -hmm. no sense. And that, I think, is one of the prime reasons why you have inflation today. That combined with, of course, there was a fiscal response to the pandemic as well, which the Fed didn't clearly didn't take into account. And so as you had a fiscal response, they weren't, the Fed was not the only game in town, but they acted as though they were. 
So that combination, look, I, I, I mean, if I can, if I can get a little kind of nerdy for a second, you know, we all Please learned, do. we all learned, you know, basic economics, that, that monetary theory is that, you know, MV equals PQ. PQ is nominal GDP. M is monetary growth. V is the velocity of money. And nobody could ever really measure the velocity of money. But when you have 27% monetary growth, you can take velocity to like nothing and mm -hmm. you're still going to get a very strong nominal economy. And that is exactly what happened. So my argument back then, I was kind of a little tongue in cheek, was either we're going to get massive inflation or Milton Friedman didn't deserve his Nobel Prize. You got to <laughs> take your choice. And we got the massive inflation. I guess he deserved his, his Nobel Prize. So to your point, we did get that massive inflation over the weekend. There has been um, a policy response to that. Uh, just curious if you're seeing any evidence of inflation cooling or at least if maybe we're plateauing or, you know, with what just came out of Congress over the past weekend, any effects that that may have. Right. So, Carlton, first of all, I, I've argued that there's three phases to this inflation story. The first phase was that it was temporary. Right. And of course, the mm -hmm. Fed responded with all this transitory stuff. The second phase would be it's worse than we thought it was going to be. I think that's where we are today. And the third is it's never going to end. I don't think we're quite there yet. And I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that um, com because commodity prices are falling, that the inflation story is over. I'll just remind everybody on this call that it's a little premature to declare victory with commodities when China's in lockdown. Right. If the Chinese economy is hitting on all eight cylinders or maybe six of eight cylinders and commodity prices are falling, I think we got something right. But when when they're clearly in lockdown, they're clearly not operating at full capacity or even close to it to argue that commodity prices falling means there's no inflation, I think is is kind of a. Um, if I can jokingly say this, kind of a mission accomplished banner putting up too soon, if all right. of you remember that one. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying that's a joke. Nobody nobody get all upset about that. But, but um, you know, I, I, that's kind of where we are on that. So, so I think we want to be a little bit careful about saying that everything is peaking out here and that we're in the free and clear. Um, you know, we haven't really gotten to that third phase yet when people say this is never ending. And that's usually when the Fed panics. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk on whether or not the Fed can engineer the so-called soft landing. I understand that you had talked about the risk of there being no landing. Which, right. If you can explain what that means, because that almost seems like a purgatory lost, you know, that TV show type situation for me. Right. No spoilers there. <laughs> so um, yeah. I guess if you can explain that thinking on what you see could be coming or if there's a hard landing, a soft landing, or this no landing. Right. And I think I think so far we've got this no landing. I realize that mathematically we're having a recession, right? And I've kind of phrased that as being a mathematical recession. Look, you know, we, we all know that, that trade is a negative to GDP. As I said before, you know, we don't make enough stuff here in the United States. So trade is habitually a negative. Um, but then you also had, had very poor inventory management among retailers, simply put, we have too many Pelotons, right? Nobody mm -hmm. wants a Peloton. And we're all going out and doing stuff again. <laughs> we're not we're not in our apartments or, or in our houses, you know, caged up. And and so there's the retailers did a very poor job in anticipating, you know, that switch and what was going to happen. So mathematically, yes, we could have a recession here, but recessions are supposed to cure excesses. 
and um, the labor market remains extraordinarily tight. I mean, this is a monster labor market um, that's out there. You know, even with the softening in the labor market we've seen, it's still three times the normal uh, tightness when you when you measure job openings relative to people looking for jobs. It's three times normal of where we are. We're not even close to something normal. So, so my point is, are we really landing? And if you don't land, what I was really getting to in this whole thing was that what a recession should do is cure the excesses and curtail inflation. With the labor market as tight as it still is, it's hard to understand how this mathematical recession is going to cure inflation. I don't think that's going to happen. And so I think we really are in kind of this, uh, using your word, purgatory of, of you know, not really landing. And I think that that's where we are. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot about when uh, talking to just households where they are feeling the pain when they do their grocery shopping, when they get gas and all of that stuff. Um, I'm sure you get uh, this question a lot, too, based on where what you do for work, what I do for work, um, you know, that kind of are we in a recession because I feel like we are. And there seems to be the sense that so many of us, the recent memories of recessions were the great financial crisis of uh, 2008, the mm -hmm. recession that we technically had during the pandemic, um, you know, these very catastrophic events. But would it be possible to have a recession, which not to downplay the impact to households and families, but that could be mild? Oh, well, I think uh, there's no doubt that households and families are, are feeling this. There, there's no doubt about that. If you look at consumer confidence, um, you know, relative to, say, the old-fashioned misery index, right? The misery index was unemployment and inflation uh, combined. The misery index is, has gone up quite a bit, especially relative to recent memory or recent observations. So, so households feel that misery, and that's, the, that's what you're getting. The difference between what we're getting right now and a true recession is that people lose their jobs, right? I mean, we could mm -hmm. argue about purchasing power being constrained, but with a tight labor market, that just argues that people are going to demand higher wages, which they are doing, right? I point out to people that if you had gotten, you know, a three or four or five percent wage increase three years ago, you probably would have been happy. Today, you'd laugh at that. Right. Because right. You're, you're losing purchasing power. So what's happening is anecdotally, you're seeing unions gain power. You know, you're seeing all kinds of things happen. We could argue whether that's good or bad. That's not my day job. But but the reality is, is the labor force is fighting back. That will continue until we actually get an old fashioned recession when you start destroying jobs. Now, you know, the, the, obviously nobody wants that to happen. I'm not I'm not suggesting that I want that to happen. I just think that's the economic reality that in that we're not going to have uh, to use the use the parlance that people use that we're not going to be able to curtail inflation with a soft landing. I, I just don't understand why the Fed is is encouraging people to believe that um, when, it, it, you know, labor economics says that's not going to happen with the tightness of the labor market. That makes sense. So, you know, we kind of laid out the macro picture, but of course, um, households, one thing that they can have some measure of control over is how they invest in this sort of climate. Um, just curious, I mean, we have seen some of the major indices come out of uh, uh, bear territory, some even coming out of um, correction territory. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have faith in, in this rebound? So, so Carlton, I actually think that this rebound is a false rally. Um, and the reason I say that 
is because when bull markets start, they start with very broad leadership, right? Because you have economic mm -hmm. tailwinds that revive the entire economy. So a large number of companies benefit from that. And market leadership is extraordinarily broad. As the economic cycle and the profit cycle mature, what you will find is that leadership begins to narrow because the markets become a little Darwinistic. It becomes survival of the fittest, right? And then during a recession, right. it's really the, the survival of the fittest. So what we've seen in this rally in the last you know, four to six weeks or whatever has been very narrow leadership. We're back to what I like to refer to as the bubble stocks, the bubble sectors, tech, innovation, disruption, you know, cryptocurrencies even rallied, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's that's kind of a revival of the old leadership. The Fed has to be cringing that they're trying to restrict um, credit and restrict liquidity, but yet the most speculative stuff is taking <laughs> off. It's clear that they're not restricting liquidity in the way they hoped because you're getting this speculative fervor back into the markets. And I think, I think um, that's another argument. The more you see the speculative fervor, the more you have to say that the Fed is going to be tightening, right? It, it, it just follows one for one. So I'm, I'm skeptical of this rally. It doesn't mean that I, I don't think there's opportunities. I mean, my firm is invested in many different places, and I think there's tons of opportunities. But the one place we are not invested, where I think there are not half as many opportunities as people think, would be technology, consumer discretionary, um, communications, you know, the whole tech innovation, disruption, cryptocurrency stuff. I, I don't think there's as much opportunity there as people even like divide their expectations in half. There's not there's not that much opportunity. And can you explain a little bit more why you don't see as much opportunity there? Is it valuations have run away or what's the reasoning there? Well, there's any number of different things, but here's the, you know, I, Carlton, I used to teach in the in the grad school at NYU. And the first night of the semester, I would come in and, and tell the MBA students, if there's only one thing you remember from this entire semester, right? Like when you think back 15, 20 years from now, and you remember, you know, the bald guy with the glasses teaching you, you know, what, what, what do I remember about that class? And the one line I used to tell them, and I used to repeat this almost every week, return on investment is highest when capital is scarce. What that means is you want to be the one banker in a town with a thousand borrowers, right? Mm -hmm. Think about that. If you're the one banker in a town with a thousand borrowers, you set the terms of those loans. Each loan is going to be very profitable for you. But turn it around. What if there's a thousand bankers and one borrower? Well, those thousand bankers are going to compete for that one loan. They're going to drive down the profitability. And the borrower will make out like a bandit. But meanwhile, the bank will lose money on the loan. And that's what investors forget. So when you get something like this, the mania of tech, innovation, disruption, cryptocurrency and everything, what you're, you've got a situation where you've got a thousand banks and one borrower. And so your mm -hmm. return on investment by definition has to be lower through time. And those are the kind of situations that I think individual investors uh, don't appreciate. They, don't, they see something going up and they say, I want that but they don't understand the economics and the finance of investing. So they chase things as opposed to thinking like the one banker in a town with a thousand borrowers. Yeah. And this was something you and I were speaking about earlier where 
uh, it's not really just a banker anymore. I mean, when you look at all the other financial players, uh, I know you had talked about there being um, $3.6 trillion of dry powder in the PE space, not to mention <laughs> the amount in venture capital. Uh, you have a lot of different players chasing these opportunities, it seems. Would that be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, one of you mentioned before the the, the extended period of, of low interest rates and kind of free money and lots of liquidity. That's where you're seeing it. A lot of it is is gone into, you know, alternative investments. You know, as I, as you point out, 3.6 trillion of of dry powder for private equity uh, to munch on for a while. I, I think they've got a, a pretty good coffer set aside for a while now. Excellent. So we've had a bunch of listener questions come in. So I'm going to try to get to those. Um, one from Arturo, which is, what is your U.S. equity market perspective for the next 12 months? Um, so Arturo, I, I would say the way we've described it in our firm um, and the way we've structured our portfolios at RBA is um, to think of, quote, the market as a little bit of a seesaw. And on one side of the seesaw, you have the tech innovation disruption bubble stuff that I was talking about. And on the other side of the seesaw, you have literally everything else in the world. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of investors have been on that tech innovation disruption side and they're feeling an immense amount of pain. But if you were on the other side of the seesaw, you've done okay. In fact, in some cases, you're actually up quite a bit. You know, if you think about energy, if you think about utilities and things like that, you're up quite a bit. So, uh, or, or at least you're up in the case of utilities. Um, so I, I think rather than thinking of the market, it's which side of the seesaw do you want to play on? And I think that's where, where the excitement is for the next 12 to 18 months. Obviously, from the way I'm talking here, Arturo, I would argue that you want to be on the other side of the seesaw from the tech innovation disruption. So you mentioned we're not to be, and I've gotten several variations of this uh, question, but uh, what are some of the top sectors that you're interested in uh, for the next 18 months? Yep. So right now at RBA, our portfolios are straddling late cycle sectors and defensive sectors. So let's define what those are. Late cycle sectors are things like energy materials, industrials. Um, defensive sectors are things like consumer staples, healthcare, and utilities. And we are straddling that. Now, if you go back a year, you would have found that we were significantly, whoppingly overweighted in things like energy. Uh, today, we're actually more overweight things like consumer staples than we are uh, energy. But we're overweight both. Now, how can we be overweight both? Because we're so underweight tech, consumer discretionary, and, and communications that allows us to have this kind of foot in each of these baskets, the late cycle basket and the defensive basket. One of the things I think is very interesting is that when you hear people talk and you listen to discussions, very often it's a choice of, do you wanna be in growth or do you wanna be in cyclicals? And people generally leave out of that conversation defensives. Mm -hmm. And and if you think about profits are now starting to decelerate, we know that. We know the Fed's going to be tightening. We know that. Probably the only two certainties we have right now. Um, defensives tend to work well in that kind of an environment. So so I think, you know, depending on, on one's view of inflation and how long this lasts, um, personally, I will just say, I don't think we're going to get the curl your toes type recession until 23. If we get it, I don't think, I don't think. So I think, you know, this this kind of slowdown in corporate profits 
um, the Fed tightening could last longer. That would, that could be an actually kind of an interesting environment for defensive. Yeah, and just curious. Um, obviously, a lot of the headlines go to the Fed's moves on interest rates. Um, what gets less attention is the roll off of the balance sheet. But just mm -hmm. curious, um, how much time you spent thinking about that, and you know the effects uh, for investors there. Yeah, I think I, I think that's. Um, uh... A very, I, I think it's it, to some extent maybe even more important. You can hear me stuttering a little bit. It, I, I think it may even be more important. Um, the question, which I don't think we can answer, is 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 the Fed's roll off of the balance sheet going to be bigger than the demand from investors as the global economy slows? I don't think anybody really knows that that answer. Uh, right now, we we have extended recently. We extended duration in our fixed income portfolios. So right now, we're making the bet that that people get a little more scared about growth. But I think in the fixed income markets, uh, one's going to have to be very nimble for the next year, year and a half, because I think sentiment could change very dramatically and very quickly. Um, you know, back and forth and back and forth between mm -hmm. when people are worried about inflation. People worried about growth. People worried about inflation. People worried about growth, and the bond, the long end of the bond market, obviously, is going to be influenced by that tremendously. So, for you know, household-oriented investors, um, what would be the playbook for fixed income? Um, I know you can't always get into specifics, whether it's stocks mm -hmm. or on the fixed income side, but just you know, kind of big picture, what can the more kind of individual investor do? So, I, I think for individual investors, the word that I used is nimble. Um, I think that that um, you know one of the things that, that we've argued at RBA is that if inf if the inflation backdrop is changing and secular inflation is going to be three or four percent, right? This is not like hair on fire type inflation. It's more kind of the normal type inflation as opposed to the abnormally low inflation we've had for for the past ten to fifteen years. If we return to something more normal, that upward trend in inflation is going to force you to be very nimble. I mean, let's be honest, fixed income investors have done very well because of the tailwind of secular disinflation and secularly falling interest rates, mm -hmm. right? Even, even the worst of fixed income investors probably did pretty well because the backdrop was there and it, and it bailed you out, right? A rising tide lifts all boats. Um, if that's changing, it means you're gonna to have to be more nimble. You're gonna to have to worry more about changing quality through time. Do I go high quality or low quality? And, and buy and hold won't work. Do I go long duration or short duration? And buy and hold won't work. So uh, it, it, what it's gonna mean is that fixed income investing is gonna require true active management, something the fixed income markets have never had, fixed income investors have never had to worry about in my entire 40 year career. <laughs> it, you really never had to worry about that. So. That's kind of the things that, that we're trying to get ahead of at, at RBA is to uh, have that kind of nimbleness in our portfolios. How do we do that? We're using an awful lot of ETFs, right? I think fixed income ETFs are one of the, one of the greatest inventions, you know, in terms of money management in the past uh, five to 10 years. Of course, that, that scares the pants off traditional fixed income money managers. But from our perspective, you know, we are, our, our firm prides itself on being experts in ETFs. Understanding ETFs uh, probably amongst the best in the industry, so we think that fixed income ETFs really uh, provide investors with that ability to be nimble, whereas the buy and hold type investor will probably be way too slow and 
and kind of get, you know, think of, think of somebody trying to run in the mud. Right. Just curious on a fixed income ETF, because sometimes that vehicle has been criticized if there's the liquidity mismatch of the ETF versus the underlying assets. So what can people look for as they're making their choices? Yeah. So I think, I think there's been a ton of fear mongering, Carlton. I, I, I think we wrote something probably three years ago, maybe, maybe four years ago now that talked about this fear mongering that fixed income ETFs were, were going to be the death of everybody's portfolios. And, and it, it's just not true. And, and, so I, I don't want to name names. I think that's always cheesy and unfair. But there's one very well-known money manager who I respect greatly, by the way. I don't, I don't want to make this out that I'm, I'm casting stones. I'm not at all. But I just don't think this was a shining moment um, when he said, you should never invest in anything that is more liquid than the underlying security. And that sounds prudent on the surface, but it ignores the whole reason that you have financial markets. Look, mm -hmm. people on this call may have traded pork, pork belly futures. My guess is nobody on this call has actually hauled around a pork belly. Right? <laughs> pork belly futures are more liquid than the underlying asset. That is the whole point to the financial markets is to facilitate trading. Look, the crude oil market, the crude oil futures market is something like 50 times bigger than the cash market. Nobody seems to worry about that. So... You know, the point being and what, what you'll actually find is that when the fixed income market seizes up or when any market seizes up, liquidity actually increases in the ETF market. And so it's not the, the more liquid market that has the problem. It's the less liquid market that has the problem. So, so I think we want to be a little careful about saying that, that fixed income ETFs are toxic uh, because they're more liquid than the underlying security. Again, that is the whole point of the financial markets is to facilitate trading. Again, think of the pork belly future example. Got it. And uh, we are on the half hour, but if you have a few more moments, uh, we have a few more listener questions sure. that uh, can away. address. Okay, so a lot of uh, big macro type questions. One from uh, Fred is, uh, hasn't the Fed been forced to assume this ambiguous role, maybe market savior role, because fiscal policy is no longer quite as available to the effect that um, it had been before? To some extent, that's true. Um, Fred's question is is absolutely right. I mean, we all know the dysfunction in Washington, um, uh, you know, and and I think you know it's uh, my my joke is that we we have world class politicians and no leaders. Um, and, and so not a lot has gotten done in Washington. I think we all know that. And to some extent, Fred's absolutely correct in that the Fed has had to resume a bigger role. My point simply was that during the pandemic and post pandemic, fiscal policy was hitting on all eight cylinders, right? You, you know, the, yep. the, the Trump administration had a, had a program, the Biden administration had a program, but the Fed continued to act as though they were the only game in town. And, and I think that was their mistake. And that was my point. Maybe I wasn't to, to Fred's, to Fred's question. Maybe I wasn't, you know, clear enough on that, but I think, I think that's the story. So, you know, as those programs came to fruition, one would think that there would be a balance between monetary and fiscal policy. If the, if the, if the spigots are being opened on the fiscal side, they don't need to be as open on the, on the monetary side, but the fed kept the spigot wide open, historically wide open, you know, I mean, it, it, it just kind of kind of strange. It was definitely perplexing. Uh, I think 
back to maybe May 2020 when most of us were still at home and you're watching what was happened to the market where we saw this huge recovery and it just did not make sense with the reality that we most of us were living in then. Yeah. Um, so question coming from Neil, and this uh, ties to some of the kind of supply chain disruptions we ha- were having. And uh, we were talking earlier about that shift from a goods to more services oriented economy. He's curious, um, are we seeing that we've just had so many jobs tried to be reshored in the U.S. or other adjacent areas that maybe our population just cannot fill them? And that's why we have the tight labor market we have oh, now. Oh, I think I, uh, Neil's hit on an interesting point. I mean, we are capacity constrained in manufacturing, not only in terms of physical capacity, but in um, in, in labor force as well. There was an interesting um study put out by Goldman Sachs that argued, okay, fine, this is my words, not theirs. Um, it basically said, okay, fine, we're going to try and build semiconductor plants in the United States, but guess what? We don't have the engineers to work in those plants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting problem. So, you know, I think, I think the unfortunate reality is that, um, too often we poo-poo the need for things as being industrial policy. And I don't think that's the appropriate way to think about this. I think there is an element of national security that is not just in semiconductors, but in everything we produce. Do we really want to be dependent on other countries for everything that we consume? Is that a, is that a position of strength? Clearly, as Europe is finding out, the answer is no. You don't want to do that. Now, their case is energy, of course. But for us, it's basically everything else but energy. So do we want to be, as a country, that dependent? I just don't think that's the smartest uh, position to be in from a national security point of view. So so I, I don't think the right way to think of it is, is an industrial policy. Is this government determining what we should and shouldn't make? I think it's a question of national security. And how do we think not just of semiconductors, but of everything? You know, you mm-hmm. go look at your go look at your COVID tests. Your COVID tests are made in China. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's hysterical. I mean, you know, it's like what could be more embarrassing? Um, so yeah, it was always one of the interesting things in an economics tech textbook where trade works out perfectly on paper, but you know, real life forces uh, step in. Um, one more question. Um, since we are talking about China, uh, also a question from Neil. Uh, do you see China as a defensive investment in this economy? Yeah. So, so let me preface this point by saying that that in no way am I saying that that China's good guys. Okay. I mean, let's 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 put that on the table right up front. My firm, Richard Bernstein Advisors, we are very dispassionate with respect to our politics. For a long time, we were significantly, I mean, whoppingly overweight energy, despite some people's ESG concerns. We are now overweight China, despite some people's concerns there. But that is not, unless the mandate given to us by our investors tells us we cannot invest somewhere, it's not our job to opine on politics and determine where people should or shouldn't be invested. So let me just put that out there. You can tell I've been beaten up already. Okay, <laughs> but but that being said, At RBA, we look at three things every time we make an investment. We look at corporate profits, we look at liquidity, and we look at sentiment and valuation. 
So let's look at China right now in terms of corporate profits. Their profit cycle is starting to turn. Clearly, they were in lockdown. They're now starting to come out of it. They have very easy comparisons, much as U.S. companies did 2020, late 2020 into 2021. Their companies are now facing very easy comparisons. So the profit cycle is starting to rev up. They're starting. It's not revved up. It's starting to rev up. Liquidity. As Western central banks are tightening, right? Every, every Western central bank is tightening. The People's Bank of China, the PBOC, is easing monetary policy. And sentiment, sentiment is clearly favorable for investors because I just had to give you a whole story at the beginning because I've been so beaten up by people for saying that we're investing in China. Uh, sentiment couldn't be better. So I think there is a pretty good chance that China could be a counter-cyclical investment here relative to Western profit cycles and Western economic cycles. Again, in no way am I saying they're good guys, but that's not my job to opine on whether they're good guys or not. Gotcha. And then last question. Um, we talked a lot about what your broad outlook is. What are some of the risks that are keeping you up at night? So, so Carlton, let me let me start by saying I I hate that question at the end at the end of a presentation because <laughs> and because you have twenty what, seconds now because right, that's what people remember right is is the worst the worst stuff so let me just I let me answer that by saying why is the property casualty insurance business so profitable and the answer is because people always overestimate the probability of bad things occurring. Right? Why does Warren Buffett own a property casualty insurance company? Right. Right? Because it's it's a source of funding. And I think everybody has to remember that when you think about like what keeps you up at night. And there's always going to be things that keep people up at night. But you know, I get I, 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 I just don't like ending on such a negative comment like that. So, you know, are there things that people should worry about? Of course. There's geopolitics. There's inflation, there's recession, there's what's the Fed going to do? You know, what's China going to do with Taiwan? I mean, there's a million different things. The war with, with Russia and Ukraine, a million different things to worry about. There's always a million different things to worry about. And don't be too quick to get under your desk in the fetal position because then you miss the opportunities. Okay, so I'll try to flip this around then. <laughs> what is the thing that you are most excited about sector, region to be invested in now? Yeah, I actually, okay, so let me tell you, I think the best growth story, if there are people on this call that are true long-term investors, and by that I mean five to 10-year investors, and you form your portfolio, and you have a very buy and holdish type portfolio, the number one thing that I think is most exciting for the long-term right now is the traditional energy sector. The energy sector is the number one sector in the United States for dividend yield and is also the number one sector for projected, in other words, forecasted long-term profits growth. In fact, it's long-term profits growth is right now forecasted by analysts who follow the companies to be about twice that of the tech sector. My guess is nobody on this call knew that, and at least half the people on the call said that can't be right. And my response to that is, why do we think the tech analysts know what they're talking about, but energy analysts don't? Why can't we just accept the data for what it is? And the data says right now that energy is the number one sector for dividend yield and the number one sector for long-term growth. Now, it's a cyclical sector, so let's not kid ourselves. It's going to do well if there's a recession. But if you really are a five to 10-year investor, I don't know how you couldn't be looking at the energy sector. Absolutely. And it seems it's also been a sector that just learned some very tough lessons uh, during the last decade and, you know, 
got some, uh, excuse me, some discipline there. Absolutely. Without a doubt, which is, which is become a political issue as well. <laughs> Everything seems to be. Well, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much, uh, Richard. That is all the time we have for today. Um, this was a great conversation. Definitely could go much longer. So we'd love to have you back. Um, for everyone listening, uh, please join us again tomorrow. We will be discussing Bitcoin. Darren Fonda, the crypto and finance editor at Barron's and Mar Marianne Labour, macro strategist at Deutsche Bank, will discuss what's next for Bitcoin and crypto overall. Uh, thank you so much for listening and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.